You're listening to an amazing podcast from an amazing podcast company. What's up, everybody? Jimmy Naples here. Welcome to another episode of Youngstown Mob Talk. Johnny couldn't be with us today, so let's dive right into it. Uh, you know, we had the big show, February 9th, 2024, Robbins Theater, master class with a master burglar. Emil Dinzia was there. Uh, it was a great night, almost a two-hour event. Uh, we had a good Q&A session after. You know, people got to come up and ask a lot of good questions. Um, the show went really well, and uh, we've received great feedback on that. Um, those of you that are in the in the Youngstown Mob group on Facebook, um, there's been numerous posts in there about that. Make sure you check those out. Um, and if you're not a member of the Youngstown Mob group on Facebook, what are you waiting for? Join now, become a mob associate. We got some great stuff on there. Uh, we have, we just have so many people that post great stories and pictures and topics. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's a great group. We're over 31,000 members. So make sure you join the Facebook group. That's Youngstown Mob on Facebook. Make sure you check us out there. Um, for those of you that like to watch our podcast with the video, youtube.com forward slash amazing podcast company. Make sure you like and subscribe. You got to click that subscribe button so you get all the new episodes as they come out. Um, and those that maybe just do podcast audio only, uh, you know, you can find us on Spotify or anywhere else that you get your amazing podcasts. Uh, Spotify, Amazon, you know, wherever it may be, um, you can find us in those places, iHeartMedia. Uh, big news, the app. I know everybody's been waiting on the app. Where's the app? Where's the app? The app is coming. We are in the final beta testing of the app. So the app will be here very, very shortly. Um, I want to thank everybody for their patience on that. Um, you have no idea the amount of work that goes into creating an app. Um, one, they're not cheap. And two, um, it's very time consuming to make a good quality app. So uh, we want to thank everybody that's uh, been working with us on that. And like I said, we are in the final beta test of the app. So that will be coming out soon. Um, additionally, um, you know, when we do these big shows like we did at the Robbins Theater, uh, we get a little behind on getting episodes to you guys, but we're working on some new episodes, um, this being one of them. And then we'll have uh, a few more episodes coming, coming your way here shortly. Um, but I want to talk about the show at Robbins Theater, February 9, 2024, Masterclass with the Master Burglar. Uh, Emil Denzio was a great show. Uh, you know, nothing but great feedback on it. So, you know, make sure that you guys, um, you know, go in the, in the Facebook group. You know, there's some great pictures in there. Um, you'll see Emil signed uh, a door for John Paul, who's a friend of ours from the Facebook group. Um, and we got some great pictures from John Paul and, and uh, from some other people that attended the show. So, you know, make sure you check that out. And, you know, without further ado, um, we're going to jump right into it. Um, this will be... Uh, for those of you on on Spotify and and iHeartMedia and those those types of places, we're going to jump right into the audio only version of um, Emil Denzio's show from the Robbins Theater. Hello, everybody! Thanks for coming out tonight. 
My name is James Naples III. I'm a local mob historian and a teacher. And I'm Johnny Ciccatelli. I'm a filmmaker and journalist. And together, uh, James and I co-host a podcast called Youngstown Mob Talk. Um, if you're familiar with our show, uh, make some noise. Okay. Now, if you've never watched or listened to Youngstown Mob Talk, raise your hand. That's okay. Good. That's welcome. Fine. Welcome. So for those of you who aren't familiar, uh, you can find all of our past episodes on YouTube. Uh, we have a YouTube channel. It's amazing podcast company. All you got to do is search Youngstown Mob Talk. It'll pop right up. Uh, we also have an audio-only version available on Apple, Spotify, iHeart, basically anywhere you get uh, your podcast, you can find Youngstown Mob Talk. Tonight's show is called Inside the Vault, and it's sponsored by Gyra Auto Repair on East Midlothian out there in Youngstown. So huge thank you to Joe and the guys at uh, Gyra. We really appreciate that. Now, before we get into the show, here's a little background on us. Uh, people familiar with the Mahoning Valley organized crime history, uh, you will recognize my last name. My grandfather, James Naples, also known as Jinx, and his brothers were all notorious gangsters here, Sandy, Billy, and of course, Joey Naples. Now, growing up around here with, you know, the last name Naples, of course, as a kid made me curious about the mafia history. And through our podcast, Youngstown Mob Talk, Johnny and I have explored much of that history, including the mafia killings of my uncles. Now, I have no blood relation uh, like James does to any of the gangsters in Youngstown, but I did grow up around here with a, with a healthy fascination for mob movies and the local history, the lore uh, in Youngstown. Um, you know, that kind of fueled me eventually. I went off to a film school. I made a documentary in 2010 called Youngstown Still Standing. Um, and over a decade later, I helped produce uh, a podcast called Crooked City Youngstown. Um, our featured guest tonight, Emil Dinzio, is in Crooked City. So if you haven't listened to that podcast, I highly encourage you to check that one out. Um, you know, people really seem to connect with that show and, uh, and love it. But, you know, I've been researching this stuff for, you know, 20 years. It's been, it's been 20 years now since I first started. And I always wanted to make a movie about the Youngstown mob history. That was kind of what got me started with the research and, and interested in this stuff. Um, I went to Florida, I went to a film school, and I had a, a, a class on documentaries. I always wanted to make a big blockbuster movie. I never thought of a documentary before. Until this professor came in one day, and he really sold the idea of true stories, right? He said, truth is not only stranger than fiction, it's often more interesting than fiction. And obviously that's definitely the case in Youngstown. Um, and the Mahoning Valley as a whole. So he, he really pushed that. If, if you know a story that's not widely known, that you should try to think of it as a documentary and go in that route. So, of course, every kid in film school, they always talk about their favorite movies, and it's always the same ones. And at the top of the list always are The Godfather or The Godfather 2 and Goodfellas. So I'd always ask these kids, have you ever heard of Youngstown? They look at me like I was crazy. They, didn't, they never heard of Youngstown. So I thought, okay, they like mob movies. 
they don't know Youngstown. There's a, there's a hole there, right? We should make, we should do something. So I started, re I started researching this stuff from a computer in 2003. And the first story that came up was about these daring bank burglars from Youngstown, Ohio, who went all the way to California to rob Richard Nixon's bank. And I was hooked. I said, that's a great story right there. So the very first thing I ever started to research was the story of Emil Dinzio. And I eventually made my way out to California. And the first thing I did was I called that newspaper reporter. His name was Keith Sharon. And I played like I was a Hollywood executive, right? I was about 20 years old, didn't have any money, but I took this guy out to dinner and I said, I want to turn your story into a screenplay. And he reached into his bag and he pulled out a screenplay and he set it on the table. And I kind of had my first lesson in Hollywood right there, which was everybody has a screenplay in Hollywood. But this guy had sold his screenplay to Sony and Sony wanted him to change it they, for budget purposes. They wanted him to change it from Youngstown to New Orleans so that they could do, film the movie there and get tax breaks. They wanted to change it from the 70s to modern day, from President Nixon to President Smith. And he, he made the changes, he wrote a new screenplay for Sony, but the story lost its soul. So eventually they, they never made that movie. Uh, technically, I say technically they never made that movie because their option, their, their rights to the screenplay expired and what they ended up doing was making another movie um, about a bank heist where instead of they were robbing President Nixon, it was now set in England and they were robbing a safety deposit box from a royal family member. But essentially it was the same story. I don't know, has anybody seen it? It's called The Bank Job starring Jason Statham. So that's Hollywood for you. They'll just rip it off, man. But, you know, that movie was okay, but still it wasn't the true story that we're going to tell tonight. And, you know, that of course is how Emil Dinzio and his crew pulled off this, you know, crazy heist. And we're going to get into that heist. We'll get into his Lordstown one as well um, and his stuff with the FBI. But, you know, at that time, like I said, I was a young guy out in L.A. trying to make movies, trying to do this, um, because it's the, it's the true stuff, Jim, that makes this stuff so compelling. Absolutely. Uh, you know, if you look at the, the lifetime of, of these guys that we talk about on our podcast, right, I mean, there's some larger-than-life figures, you know, guys like Jasper Fatsiello, uh, Two-Gun Jimmy Prado, Emil Dinzio. You know, Sandy Naples, Joey Naples, all those guys, right? Cadillac Charlie Cavallero, we just did a show about him in uh, November. You know, so these are guys that, that there's a story to tell there, and we're just trying to do that. You know, Emil wrote a book that details his life story. It's called Inside the Vault. Uh, you can actually get an autographed copy over at the merchandise tent over there. Um, along with some great Youngstown Clothing shirts. Thanks, Youngstown Clothing, for coming out. Um, and also, I think they've even got some of the, the paintings over there from our, our, our Valley's favorite... Congressman. Congressman. Jim Traffic. Jimmy Trafficant. So we've actually got some of the, uh, the original prison artwork for sale up there. 
if you're interested in that kind of stuff. <laughs> so, you know, back when Johnny and I, when we did our first show here at the Robbins last year, Emil actually came up to us after the show, and we've kept in touch. And eventually we got the ball rolling on this show that all of you are attending tonight. Now, Johnny, let me ask you, did you think when we did that show last year that we would be here where we are today? This is our third show. Yeah, it was interesting. You know, actually, we had a guest for that show who was in the audience. We didn't even know. It was Emil Denzio. Right. That's how we, that's how, you know, Emil was in Crooked City. Uh, I wasn't the person that interviewed him for that show. It was another producer. I didn't meet Emil until he showed up one of those seats right in the middle there a year ago today. Yeah. And he showed up because, you know what, he wanted to tell his story. And before we bring him out, you know, people always ask us, why, why do you do these shows on mobsters or, you know, criminals like Emil Denzio, right. right? But my answer is kind of always twofold. You know, first of all, why do people like mob movies? Why do people like bank heist movies? Because it's fascinating stuff. I don't care what you say. This is stuff that, you know, maybe it's, it's escapism in a way, right? Everybody, we all live our lives on the straight and narrow, and you just kind of root for those guys to, to get that bank, right? Right. So, you know, the, the genres themselves, people just can't seem to get enough of. And again, we focus on real stories. That's why we do it, because these are real stories that happen here in Youngstown, true crime right from the Mahoning Valley. So, you know, Emil admits to these bank burglaries. He served his time for it. In fact, he spent about 35 years of his life in prison. You know, think about that. That's a lifetime right there, in prison. So, and, but he's still around. You know, when are you ever gonna get a chance to hear firsthand accounts of stories like these? You know, it's a lot like the show that we did back in November with the Cavalero bombings. We had the last living FBI agent that had worked that case. Um, we had the bombing survivor, Charlie Jr. himself, and they came and told their stories. That's once in a lifetime stuff. That's right. And you know, Emil's 87 years old, and he's finally able to tell his story, and that's why we're here tonight. So without further ado, Let's welcome tonight's guest of honor. The FBI called him a master burglar, but you can just call him Emil Denzio. Ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome Emil. Emil, thanks for being here. You got a mic right there for you. All right. <sighs> Go ahead, Jim. So, Emil, before we get into your criminal career, let's go over your early life real quick. So, is it true that your father came to America from Italy on the same boat as future mob boss Jimmy Prado? Yes. Talking on the mic for us. Yes, it is true. Raise it a little closer. Came to that Alice Island down New York City. A little closer. And uh, his name is down there right on it. Now, Jimmy Prado, he'd become a notorious 
you know, around here, people either called him Briar Hill Jimmy or Two Gun Jimmy, two right? Gun, two Gun Jimmy. Or, or by the 1970s, they just call him the old man because he was kind of an older guy by the time he became the boss around here, right? Yeah. So what, what, was, what was Jimmy Prado like? Well, he, he never talked too much. I knew him. My brother knew him. My dad knew him. My dad always told me, don't do anything for these mob people. They use people. They use people. And we always remembered that in the back of our mind. And I would go to his place out there in 224 and uh, patronize a little bit at different times. I never went out there much. Maybe once every two weeks or something, just be sociable. Now, but that was it on that. Amo, is that where you also met Lenny Strollo? Lenny Strollo? Lenny Strollo I knew very well. Uh, my mother, in 1946, we sold the farm, my dad did, and we moved up to North Lyme, Ohio. And then my dad, uh, Calla Road, my dad opened a restaurant. My mother was a good cook, because she cooked for all these kids. And in the back room, he had one-armed bandits, <laughs> poker tables, and Lenny Strollo would take care of the fixing the bingos for Briar Hill. And uh, if the rolls were short, a couple pennies, I mean, a couple nickels, dimes, he'd say, here, shorty, and I'd go to the back room, one of one arm bandits. I liked it. But anyhow, that's how I met Lenny Strollo. I was thir 13 years old. For, any, for our younger uh, listeners out there, the one-armed bandits, those are the, those are the slot machines that you see down at the Hollywood Gaming all the time, right? Yeah, they're worth a lot of money, the <laughs> old ones. <laughs> the old ones are worth a lot of money. And for anybody who doesn't know the, the hierarchy of the local underworld here, Jimmy Prado was the boss in the 70s into the 80s. Uh, then when he died... Joey Naples took over kind of as the local boss. And after Joey was killed in 91, Lenny Strollo became the boss until eventually his whole crew was, was convicted in the late 90s. So, you know, these were guys who were eventually top of the food chain in the mob around here. Uh, <laughs> let me tell you. Amo, let me ask you a question now. So you first started robbing banks as a teenager, right? You and your brother James. Uh, the first one that you robbed was a bank down in Wheeling, West Virginia. And back then, you were known as a bank robber, not a bank burglar. Yeah. Um, can you tell everybody what's the difference between a robber and a burglar? Yeah, well, let me, let me back this up. My brother, he's seven years older than I am. So he would go down to Steubenville. And in the early days down Steubenville, Water Street was uh, prostitution all along the street. Okay. And so when I got a little older, I went down there too. <laughs> <laughs> but you could drive along and look up at the women, and they do this here. And you go to three, four, you could... You know, one, two dollars, five dollars, <laughs> whatever. And if you wanted to stop, you would. So, the mob guy down in Wheeling, West Virginia, at the time, he had uh, 
I forget the name of the restaurant. But we would stop there and then go over into Wheeling, West Virginia, to the rooster fights. And the rooster fights were down in a long, big barn. And you go there and you bet the roosters to win or fight, whatever it is. So that's how that started. So we used to come back then, coming back to uh, Steubenville. And there was a little sausage shop sitting there. And we always had a hot sausage or whatever we liked, right? And there was a little bank there. And we says, ah, th th think we could rob that? <laughs> and so the next night or two nights later or something, we slipped around back of the bank. My brother took a pen knife. Slipped. Basically, right? But you matured. You guys, you and your brother, you came to the realization that that was probably a bad idea, right? Going in there with a the gun, doing a stick up. So, well, you know, I, I know the story here. I'll help you tell them real quick. You were taking your sister one day to work at Isley's in Boardman. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell them. Take I'll it away. Them. Yeah. <laughs> the Boardman Plaza, it was one of the, I think it was the second plaza that, that the Bartlow Corporation built, or second or third, anyhow. But my sister, she was one year younger than me. I had a 37 Chevy car. I paid $50 for it. <laughs> it ran good, though. But I'm taking her to work one morning, and I'm sitting in the lot, and I'm watching this guy inside the Mahoney Bank. He's in the night depository. He's pulling bag after bag after bag of money out of there. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. So when I went home, I told my brother, I said, you got to see this. I said, there's money all over the place there. So I, he came over there, and at the time when I dropped my sister off, and he said, yeah, I said, this is what we got to do here. We got to beat these night deposits. So it said right on the window, premises protected by Diebold. Diebold? What the hell is Diebold? Well, ordinary phone book, we found Diebold in Canton, Ohio. So we made a trip to Canton, Ohio. And there was a little shed there, and there was a guy we watched a couple nights. He never even left the shed. So, yeah, we're going to look this place over. The guard, the guard, he's saying, never. Ne the guard at the alarm company never left the shed. I love it. <laughs> well, it just had a fence around it, that's all. Chain link fence. So we go in, one of the buildings we opened up first. It was open itself, but there were safes in every uh, stage of... Uh, being put together, and they were round doors. That's what the night drops were, were in them old banks. So we wound up taking one of the round doors. It weighed about 300 pounds. Took it and put it in the car. Our car was like this. <laughs> but, we <parked. laughs> but we had to park for a while because you, you don't like to drive late at night, something like that. You know, you get pulled over quick. So daylight finally come. We took the round door home, and we made a jig. We made a jig to drill them open. And then we said, now how are we going to beat the alarm systems? So we went back to Diebold, and I had my flashlight like this. I still remember going around the buildings, looking in the windows. And I looked in this one window there, and I saw a board, and there was about two feet maybe by three feet or two foot by two foot. 
And you could see it had controls on it like. And it must have been for, you know, their burglar alarms guys teaching them how to do it. So anyhow, we popped the window up. No alarm on a building <laughs> in there. And we took the whole board home. So, and there were schematics. There were schematics laying over there. We took a big bunch of them schematics. And we took it to a friend I know, or my brother knew, that knew a lot about alarm systems. I mean, electronics. So it didn't take him two days. He had that whole thing figured out. Great. Now we could go burglarize night depositories. So that's what we did. We got started on night depositories. I, I, always, I always, whenever I hear that, I always imagine what the guys at Diebold must have thought when they came to work the next day <laughs> and their whole thing is gone. Do you think they even reported it? You know, they fear they might get in trouble. They probably just kept it hush-hush. They're probably too embarrassed. I don't know. <laughs> so Emil starts doing these bigger scores now, and, you know, he's getting money out of the night deposit safes. But you like to gamble a little bit, right, Emil? Yeah, we gambled. I bet on the uh, football and everything. Is that, uh, is, that, is that around the time you got involved in a, in a bar boot game up in Cleveland? No, that wasn't that. That guy was my friend. He would, excuse me, he was a little criminal too. But I said just a little bit. But he was a good guy and he knew a lot of mob people and everything. So bar boot, I don't know if you know what a bar boot game is or not. Bar boot is dice on a table. 50% chance to win, 50% chance to lose, depending on which way you're betting it. So I got in good friends with him, and I would go up there like every Thursday. He would give me like 10%. He'd cut that out of the mob. The mob never knew it, that I was getting a little bit of it. They thought it was down in, in their little plot they had. But anyhow, Butchie Sesterino was his name. He's been dead a long time ago. But the one time when I go up there, now, we'd been beating night drops all around this country, Indiana, Wisconsin, it didn't matter. All you had to do, take a ride, grab a phone book, find out where Sears is or J.C. Penney's, and you just go into that area, you know they're dropping nice big bags down in there, <laughs> and that's what they did. We would cut, drill the night drop open, The locking pin, like looking at your watch, nine o'clock. Combination here, go over six inches, eight inches, wherever you went. Drill the hole through there, cut the locking pin, reach in there with a little magnet, and you pull it over, spin the door open. And there's all them bags there. Well, that went on for quite a while we did those night drops because they, they were like gifts. I'm not kidding. I ain't trying to be smart. But, and that's what we called them, gifts. Did, did, Abel, did it feel so, like Christmas every time you opened one? So, actually... <laughs> did, James is asking, did it feel like Christmas morning when you went in the, when you got those safes open? Well... <laughs> <laughs> I 
I don't know what, what you'd call it. It's like, uh, I don't know what you, how, to, how to describe it. It's just a good feeling. <laughs> Cutting the bags open. <laughs> Cut the bags open. All the money in there is already wrapped up. Deposit slips on it. You didn't even have to count it. <laughs> you take the checks, you take the checks, throw them aside, pile the cash up over there. We had big feed sacks. We'd carry feed sacks. Throw them in the feed sack, take it out. You couldn't, some of them, I'm not lying, some of them had so many bags in them that the steel in the bags were the key locks. It made it too heavy. You, you had to cut them open to get the money. It was too heavy. You couldn't carry them out of there. Wow. The, the, back in them days, that's what it was, especially in them rich areas. And if you was in a mall that had 260 stores and all that, see, you'd have Friday night, Saturday night, and Sunday night's action of all them places dropping their bags. It was a gift. That's what we call them. Ask them about you. Good gifts. <laughs> then they actually put us in the coal business. Banks financed us into the coal business. So we had a strip mine. I don't know. He had pictures up here. That strip mine. Uh, we'll, we'll get. Yeah. We'll, let's see. You'll see the. You you probably seen them going over a little bit, but there's uh there's a few pictures from the Dinzio. Was it the Dinzio Brothers? Dinzio Brothers Mining Company. Mining Company. And where was that located? Greenford, Ohio. Greenford. In Latonia. We had two tipples, one in Latonia and one in Greenford. The one in Greenford, we actually washed coal there for sulfur in it. Yeah. And industrial mining from uh, Lisbon, Ohio, had the contract that Cleveland Illuminating, and all of our coal went to Cleveland Illuminating to make electric, you know, to power the country. That's how that went. And those coal mines, that came in pretty handy with, for, uh, for what you guys were doing because you were, you were using a lot of dynamite, right? Well, yeah. <laughs> if he had that up there with the drag line and everything. Here, there, there's a picture of the Dinzio mining office right there. Yeah. It'll show, it'll, it'll go through, keep going. Yeah, the drag line, you'll see the drag line, but anyhow. You know, you make long cuts, then you got to blow the high wall in, and you had to use dynamite for that. So we had dynamite by the cases. You we bought them by the cases, with nothing to it. So when we started on the bank vaults, we actually experimented right down at our mine, and we knew just how much to give it. We were using, when we, when we did a bank vault, we used 60% dynamite. It, the nitroglycerin is held in the dynamite with sawdust. So you can shape it any way you want it. So we would drill five holes in top of the vault. We get on the roof of the vault, drill five holes. First, we took the alarm system off. The, the alarm system. There were nothing in them days. Actually, some of them you could put a little six-volt battery to the telephone line, and you beat the bank. That's unheard of. 
But not many people knew that, only guys like us. Hey, hey, That's Abel, what it I want to I get back to Butchie Sisterino real quick. So in 1972, he gave you the tip of a lifetime, right? He gave you the tip on Laguna Nigel, right? Whose, whose money was, was in this bank? Laguna Nigel? Yes. President Nixon. <laughs> it, it didn't matter whose money was in there. We'd have went after it. Well, anyhow, let me back this up. <laughs> when I went to the bar boat game one night, my buddy, I got a score you might like. Maybe do. Yeah, he says, how would you like to steal 30 million? I said, yeah. <laughs> so, so anyhow, that's how that started out. That's how we wound up at Laguna Nigel to go down and get Richard Nixon's money. First, we made a trip down there, checked the bank out. We actually went in the bank through the front door. We picked the lock, slid in the bank, looked it all over, then came back out. It was easy for us to do. So when we did the Laguna Heist, I know, and I have a lot of things back there, that's what most of that is about. All them easels I put up back out there. The Laguna Heist caused me to make that stuff. And I did eight years in prison for that. But anyhow, Let me let me jump ahead. Or you want me to jump ahead or back? We'll, out? we'll, we'll get to the the yeah. stuff on those easels in a moment. But you got this tip, right, to steal money from the president of the United States. Now, for anybody who doesn't know here, the, a little bit of the background on that was Jimmy Hoffa was the president of the Teamsters Union, and he went to prison. Well, he ended up paying President Nixon what three million. For a pardon, a presidential pardon. And when he got out, I guess he wanted that money back. So, well, he, so he told his, uh, his contacts within Detroit, Cleveland mob area, and that's where the tip eventually worked its way down to you. Well, you're, you're pretty close, but that's, that's not quite it. Where did I get, what, which part what did I get wrong? Yeah. Jimmy Hoffa did get put in prison. And he paid $3 million, but he paid a lot more than that, according to the Watergate hearings and everything up in D.C. But anyhow, I don't think he wanted his money back. That's the reason I went there and did it, okay? But when we went to the Laguna Nigel to do that job there, it was a little bank. I think he has pictures of it. Don't you have the pictures yeah. of that? Yep, it'll pop up. How the bank set and everything. But I went down there looking to steal $30 million of President Nixon's money because that was in 72 when they had all that big things going on about re-elections and everything, holding these big dinners where people would pay $10,000, $20,000, you know, a plate. Campaign contributions. And that's what this money was supposed to be, from that and the dairy farmers. Because he said, Nixon said, I'll raise the price of milk, and that would give him a lot of money. So anyhow, 
That's the way that went. So, so we went down there to beat the Laguna score, which you can see on TV, the Laguna, the Laguna heist, on the Discovery Channel and on Great Bank heist. You just put my name in the FBI files and you'll see a lot of it. And it's, it's just good reading. Different people jumped on that and tried to make money on it. And one of them was even my own nephew, Finding Steve McQueen. Well. That's a movie he's talking about. Yeah. He put that out. Some producers got a hold of him, and he went for it, okay? What we did in the Laguna Heist had never been done before by anybody. There was other bank burglaries and stuff. They used burning bars and all that to go through bank vaults. We were the only ones that used explosives. We had explosives about the size of a chicken egg. And my brother would form it right around the blasting cap, electric blasting cap. I shove it down in a hole. Put five holes in a circle. X holes in a circle. Touch it off, bags of dirt we put on top. The vault was 18 inches thick concrete. Thousands of little cracks running every way in the concrete before we did it. And we knew, well, the concrete was weak, cracked up there. We actually had to cut back on the amount of explosives we used. But it goes like this here. You put dirt bags on top, you go, like that. You already hear nothing. In fact, my walkie-talkie man outside, he said, was that it? I said, I said, that's it. I said, now be quiet. We've got to get to work. <laughs> Real quick, one of those documentaries, the TV documentaries that they just played on here, you know, erroneous information, some of it, right? It said that you brought this guy on for muscle and you brought this guy on for an alarm. Well, the truth was, you, you just brought those two guys on. You didn't even need those guys. You just no. brought them on as a favor, right? Well, it was a favor to Butchie Sesterino. He had the bar boot game in Cleveland like I was talking about. Little Whitley over there. And his one cousin was Phil Christopher. And then his Charlie Brickles was Phil Christopher's buddy. Well, as it turned out, by me taking them, is how I got caught from the Laguna Nigel Heights. Charlie Brockles was wanted for a Dr. Price murder in Cleveland, Ohio. And this Dr. Price, they went in on him and they just shot him. That's how he got out of going to prison for the Laguna heist and the murder, because the prosecutors in Cleveland gave you know, they didn't prosecute him for it. Yeah. That's how that went. So, you know, we'll talk about, you went out to this bank, Laguna Nigel. First of all, you had to stake it out. Yeah, well, so that was easy. How, how long, how long did, did that process take? Oh, it just take a week or two. See, what are you doing out there when you go stake out a bank for right, a week? Just ride around, look over the country, 
What are you, what are you looking for? Get away where you can get apartment to stay, whatever, you know. Buy a blow car. A blow car is a car under another name. So if you had to leave it, you had to ditch it, they couldn't trace it to you. So they call them blow cars. And a lot of people didn't know what a blow car was, but that's what it was for that. Other thieves did the same. Richardson under another name. But getting back, to, getting back to that heist, we went there looking to steal $30 million of Nixon's money, but we wound up getting 12 of it, and then we got the safety deposit boxes, which is kind of bad to take somebody's mother's diamond, his jewels, but that's what we did in them days. We burglarized banks. That's what we did, and it was profitable. Uh, Emil, let me, let, let's talk about security systems, specifically of that era. So in layman's terms, what was your method for getting around a bank security system? Bank security business? Yeah. Just like I told you, when we went up the can and stole that alarm board, my friend who knows electronics, he winds up making a box. We called it the boss man because it took care of business. And when it was, the bank alarm, when you hook into it, telephone lines, it comes to the box. There's a double pole micro switcher. It comes into that. When you flip your switch, it cuts the bank out and your box in. So the bank is left sitting there by itself. And then you just go in and get your money and go home. <laughs> was, that, was that easy? I'm not trying to be smart, but that's the way it was, really. It was easy, easy money. I was young, my brother was young. We was both in good shape. So we would leave and my mother would say, I just wonder where them boys are going now. <laughs> <laughs> Did you come back with a gift for your mom? No, no, she didn't know nothing about that. No. <laughs> <laughs> she didn't know nothing. They might have thought it. <laughs> my dad didn't know either. I had a closet. I had a closet up in my bedroom. I had shoe boxes full of money. I would sort out the ones, the fives, the hundreds. And let me tell you something. There was even $1,000 bills and 500s in them days, believe me. Nice big bills, which I'll get into that a little later, too, about them $1,000 bills. But then we got to thinking, we got to be crazy having that money in the house like that there. So we just took garbage bags and we buried money out right out behind the house. Stupid, stupid stuff. And we buried it because nobody knew we were doing it. Nobody knew we had all that money. So then, so then we catch a lot of heat from that Laguna Nigel from this Charlie Brickle. He's the one that ratted us out. That's how we got caught. One of the guys I took is the one that got us busted. And that's the way that one went. So is that a, is, was that the biggest lesson then you learned from that one was it's who, you, it's who you surround yourself with on these jobs? 
is most important? What? Would you say it's, would you say it, the most important lesson then out of that heist was who you bring with you? Oh yeah, hell yeah. You got I'm a little hard hearing, that's why he's gotta do that. <laughs> Getting old, you know. So Emil, let me ask you this. So you, so you rob Laguna Nigel, you come back with, with all this money. Um, you know, did you fence the golden jewelry? You know, did you buy yourself anything nice, like a new house or a new car or anything? Well, we should have stopped. Is that what you're saying? No, I'm, I'm just asking, when you came back from robbing Laguna Nigel and you got back to Ohio, did you buy yourself something nice, like a new house or a new car no, or anything no, like no, that? No, 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 I laid low. I never showed no money. I, I, I buy used cars. You never want to buy a new car. People look at that. You buy used cars. But that ain't really what goes on. You want more money, you want more money, you want more money when you don't need to go get more money. And you eventually screw up again. Sounds like a, almost like an, an addiction. Yeah. <laughs> My daughter said it is. <laughs> but see, we're here for the Laguna Heights and the Lordstown Bank. That's right. The Lordstown Bank. How, how far after, how, how long after the Laguna Heist did you do the Lordstown Heist? Same. I've, when I got home <laughs> from, uh, from California, the reason was there was a d detective from right here in this city. Take that cap off. From Warren, Ohio. Warren, Ohio, right. He liked to operate with some burglars. And that's what he did. He liked a little money. So he come to me and he says, he says, uh, excuse me. He says, the Lordstown, setting out by General Motors, the Lordstown Bank. He said, it's a bonus sharing payday. He says, it's going to be three million bucks there. Well, hell, we had, we had just stole, believe me, millions from the Laguna Bank. And just so these people know, what, what was it? Are we talking like about, it was around 12 million? Was that about the number? 12, 12 million. That 12 million of Nixon's money we got. There was no 30 million there, but there were 12 million. And when he said three million, even my brother says, we want to go get three million? <laughs> we... <laughs> I said, three million's a lot of money. Let's go. <laughs> so anyhow, that's what happened at the Lordstown Bank. And that was a bank that we'd watch them build. I knew what they had because they advertise when they build new banks and all that. We watched them build that bank we knew. It had eight-inch blocks with a steel liner on the inside, half-inch steel liner. That's an easy one. <laughs> Kill the alarm, go in and get your money. What happened there was this here. Somebody, and I don't know who it was, over in Warren here or someplace, 
they tried to take a night depository off. They set the alarm off. So I got these records after through the Freedom Information Act. They set the alarm off. So Diebold had went to this bank in Lordstown and they made the alarm more sensitive, made it more sensitive. So when I hooked into the Lordstown bank with my long line to the boss man where I'm going to take the alarm off, when I flipped the switch, my radio man, Chuck, my brother-in-law, Mulligan, because I didn't do all this stuff myself. You know that. He said, alarm drop, Lordstown Bank. What? I couldn't believe it. So the telephone line I had hooked in, it just looked like a regular line going from the telephone pole over to the bank, so they don't notice that. They don't look for that. So I had 300 feet, 300 or 350 feet of four conductor wire hooked into that line to my box over in the weeds where we was. So we just, I told Chuck, come on, come on across the road, come on. And we just sat back there and we watched. So pretty soon, one cruiser, one cruiser pulls in. Two minutes later, boom, another cruiser pulls in. They got out, we can hear them talking on their walkie-talkies. They're calling the Trumbull County Sheriff's Department right here, right? Yeah, because that's where the alarm was hooked into. The town was so small out there, they didn't even have their own police department. He was a constable, rather. He'd go home at night, you wouldn't see him, never. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that's the way it went. So we stayed back there, and we could hear on the walkie-talkie the police talk. And the dispatcher here says, hey, I'm going to call the bank president at his home and find out what he wants me to do. So he calls. We can hear everything going on right over the radio, the walkie-talkie. I mean, the police monitor. And he says, he says, is the outside bell ringing? Well, I had put styrofoam in that already, so it can't ring. <laughs> so, they go over with their flashlight, they look up there and say, no, it's not ringing. So come up back over to monitor and says, well, the president says it must be a false alarm. They'll send a man out in the morning to check it out. I said, really? <laughs> That's all right. So, so all we did, we just sat back and watched, watched. Pretty soon that cruiser left and the other cruiser goes, I said, what? Now, here's a bank right there for us. They left. So we went over and said, come on, we've got to make this fast, because now we're killing time. So eight-inch blocks with, you know, that steel plate in the inside, sledgehammer, right through it, from where they ate in the bank. We'd come down in, and where they ate was right up against the wall of the back. Like the break room. Yeah. yeah. Sledgehammer that, I lit up the torch, Cut a nice hole out of it like that. Went in. First thing I see is the money cart where the drawers are. <laughs> I had to laugh. But anyhow. Try to talk in the mic more. But anyhow, I went picking the money out of the drawers. Drawers are all ready for the next day. Pick the drawer out. You got to do this. You, go. you got to do this to each pack. 
like this here, because they put bait money in there with red dye. Like, boom, it explodes. So you gotta, you got to bend to see if it bends or not. So I just do like this, every pack of bills, throw in a bag. If it, if it won't bend, throw it aside, because you know that's it, okay? So it didn't take us that long. There was 430,000 in there. There wasn't no three million. It was 430,000. And the big square door safe in there, I said, God damn, we're going to run out of time. We're going to run out of time. Now we've got to open this square door safe in there. I grab the handle on the square door. I'm kind of mad. And I go like this, and the safe is open. <laughs> it was nice. All the shelves stacked with money. That was really re nice, you know what I mean? So <laughs> start filling the bags, filling the bags. Pretty soon I told James, I says, hey, there, there ain't no three million bucks here. Because you're grabbing ones of fives, you know what I mean, them small bills, $100 bills, 50s. But once you played with a lot of money like we had over the past, yeah, I knew right away. I says, there ain't no three million bucks here. He said, must be hidden in a safety deposit box. I don't know. I said, we ain't got time to be looking in them. We got to, you know, it was getting late. But anyhow, that's what we got out of that 430000 And What'd you do with that money? What'd I do? What'd yeah. I do with the money? Yeah, what'd you do with the Lordstown money? Yeah, did you, launder, were you going to launder it through something? How, what was the plan? The money that was in the drawers, the money that was in the drawers, I actually washed that. When I say washed that, exchanged it with a lady I had in a bank. I would give her like five, ten thousand today. She would give me good money out. She would hand it out to people. You know what I mean? Customers in the bank. So that's how that went. But the big thing is. I sent the money to a guy in Canton, Ohio, named Pat Ferruccio. He was a mob guy. He was going to Vegas, and I had him to exchange it. Well, the way it turned out, he didn't go to Vegas. He had his flunky in his office going around the banks in the Canton area exchanging money. The FBI caught on to that, and they arrested Goldstein. That was the guy's name, Goldstein. He didn't want to go to Vegas, and that little percentage you pay, 3%, so he wanted to collect that money himself. That's the reason he didn't do it. But anyhow, Goldstein gets arrested. Now I'm worried, you know? And I says, uh, Pat, do you think Goldstein's going to talk? He said, Goldstein ain't going to talk. I call him Sid. Sid ain't going to talk, and Sid ain't not going to jail. What? What's this tell me? Something's wrong here, right? Well, years later, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit. Years later, I found out that Pat Ferrigio was an FBI informer himself. You know, I'm lucky to be alive. Lord's going to mess with these people. But anyhow. Emil, real quick, I'm, I don't want to interrupt you, but it just sounds like 
the Laguna Nigel heist, you end up taking two guys as a favor from yeah. from your from your mob yeah. buddy up in Cleveland, get you jammed up. Lordstown, you you you, take, you give the money to a, to a mob guy out of Canton, and he's informing. He you end up getting caught up. Who would have thought, right? The mob guys didn't. You could you couldn't trust the mob guys. No. So, what happened here is this here. Here's how this goes. That money from the Lordstown Bank, I had $160,000 in my house. I said, I gotta, I, I, I'm crazy here. So I had a round jug, thermos jug. I buried $120,000 in the money. Inside, I had $1,000 bills and 500s. At that time, they weren't giving them out in banks no more. But I put $20,000 in $1,000 bills and 500s, which don't take many bills for $20,000. And I buried it. The FBI was watching my house from my neighbor's house. They saw me bury the money. They had to dig it up the same night, probably. It, it finally winds up to 98,600 in the jug. So either the That's FBI true. agent that watched me bury the money, which I know which one it is now, too, <laughs> stole the thousands and the 500s, so they reduced it, <laughs> you might say. I have a little thing out there to tell you about it. <laughs> And that's how that went. So, Sidney Goldstein was arrested May 27, 1972. I was arrested June 6, 1972. June 7, 1972. They came into my house with a search warrant planted a gold-plated silver dollar and a $20 bill from the Laguna Heist, saying it was bait money. It wasn't. It was just money, they serial number, you know, on a bait money. So that's what led up to me going on trial in California and Lordstown after because of the two guys I took, the snitch and the other guy. <laughs> but they went ahead, instead of saying the FBI agent buried that money, I mean, found that money, they say a little kid by the name of Sinkle that lived across the street where the FBI was living in his house, watching me. That's when the FBI went into my garage stole my fingerprint on a, on a flashlight batteries. Took the flashlight battery to California, planted it in a car, which then connected me to the car. In the search warrant affidavit to search the house, it talks about my fingerprint being found in the car in California on a battery. How can I beat that? 
pretty hard, isn't it? But that's how they work. Emil, Emil asked us to do this show. He said he wanted to state his case. Okay. So, you know, there's a reason we're only talking about two banks out of the hundreds that he's, that he's probably done. Because the same reason his book is this thick and not this thick as it was originally when he wrote it, his lawyers said, you better, you better cut this much out of it. Yeah. Or else you're going to get in some trouble. Yeah, I, I had other banks in there that we did burglarize bank vaults. And the attorney says, then people are going to sue you when they find out you stole their stuff out of their boxes. They're going to sue you. I don't care how many years pass. And it was true. So I had to cut the book down. <laughs> so I, I cut the book down to the two, the Laguna Heist and the Lordstown. That's where that is. So we're going to show you some pictures here now. Emil, what are we looking at up here on the screen? That's the trunk of the car in California where they say they found my fingerprint on a battery. That was a battery that they stole out of my garage, the FBI. This here, the snitch told them where the car was too. The snitch told them where the car was too. So when they find the car, this is what's in the trunk under a board because I cut the trunk out. You see that gun there? Can I walk over there? Yeah, sure. Yeah, let me show you this here. This gun, yeah. Oh, they're changing the picture here. There you go. You see right there's a gun. You see that gun? Goes right up through there. I got a circle. Back there, it's all circled up. When you step back there, You will see on my easels this here gun. The gun they found in the truck of the car was a pump gun, 16-gauge pump gun. This gun you're looking at here is the 16-gauge pump gun. When you look back there in them easels, you will see another gun, too. It is an automatic reason, you see that circle there? That's a cut in a bag where walkie-talkies is in that bag. When you see back there on my easels, you will see that cut in one bag, and then I got a circle on another one. It's not the same bag. What's going on? Here's what happened here. You see that shoe there? You go back on that one if you can. You see that shoe there? That shows the back of the car. When the FBI was taking that picture, the camera overshot the back of the car and photographed something on the floor, which would prove the car was not searched they say it was searched in this man's garage. So now what are they going to do? 
the FBI terrorists, see that over there, 112D? When you look back there, you will see 112D. When you see 112E, it is the same. Then when you see 112F, it's a different gun, different bag. What's going on? So you're saying that they planted different evidence there just to try to get you, to yeah, try to they, make it all work, their case work. It's back there. When you, look, you people have done, look at them easels back there. It tells you the whole story. You know, I, we've, I've talked to Amal a lot about this, and he doesn't deny any of it, doesn't deny doing the crime, doesn't deny bringing the stuff in the car, doesn't deny any of that. But he says what gets him upset is that they couldn't get him legally, so they, they had to become a little crooked themselves to try to get you. If they didn't go in my garage and steal this fingerprint and do what they did to me, I would have never wrote a book. But when they went in there and did that, I said, no, I got to let the public know just what they are. I get an email from a guy in South Africa. I got an email from a guy in South Africa. He says, I was watching television, and I read after this thing on television he was watching, he says, then I saw your show come up, I mean, that the FBI had made. They had made that one. They took off there, see? He says, you Denzel sure had your shit together. You know what I mean? And he goes on. So I wrote him back on his email. I told him what happened. I told him what the FBI does. But this shows you halfway around the world, they use that phony stuff back there on the public. Abel's had a few people reach out to him. You actually had, was it the son of the bank manager in Laguna Nigel? Yeah. You become, he's become good friends with the bank manager's son, <laughs> has reached out to him when he was in prison and, and yeah. struck up a friendship. I became good friends with him. When I go to California, I still see him. I go out there, I visit him. <laughs> he was 16 years old when, when that happened. He wrote me and he wrote my daughter and he says he would like to correspond with me, would I do it? And I said, yeah, so I did. And he started telling me things about the bank out there after the heist and everything. One person said he had 250,000 in a safety box. Another person, 10, 15, 20,000, whatever, right? So, what they told him, step over there and talk to that IRS agent was sitting at a table. Not a one of them went over there, he told me. <laughs> Not a one went over to the FBI. That's the way that went. But you hear all kind of stories. I had this, I had that. I had this, I had that. Which there was a lot of stuff. But when you beat a bank vault, you gotta expect you're gonna get a lot of stuff. And that's what we did. Real quick, uh, we're going to do a Q&A here very soon. 
Uh, where do we want them to line up? Where, where's Pat? We got to, let's see. All right, so we're going to have this, this aisle here. If you, was it this one or that one? This one. If you want to start lining up, if you have any questions for Emil, start lining up. But we do ask, first of all, a couple things. Emil told me that there's going to be some FBI agents in the crowd tonight. Oh, yeah. So we, we kindly ask that if you are an FBI agent that you identify yourself. Raise your hand. <laughs> uh, no, but we do have a roll. One question, um, you know, just to keep it moving. And if we have time, uh, you know, get back in line and we can ask more. But before we get to the Q&A, so you guys can start lining up now. Um, Emil. You got, how many years did you get for Laguna Nigel Heist? I did, eight years. I did eight, eight years in Leavenworth. Eight years in Leavenworth. <clears throat> what about the Lordstown Bank? How many years did you get for that one? The Lordstown, they stacked it on top of it. I, I got, I did eight years for the Laguna Heist, but I was sentenced to 20. So they added 10 more for the, Lordstown. Now, she made 30. It's important to remember here, these bank heists we've talked about, these, the ones we mentioned, these were over 50 years ago now. Yeah. So, you know, bank systems have changed. We don't encourage anybody to go out there and try to rob any banks. It wouldn't work today. The stuff that Emil did no, back then wouldn't no. even work today. Wouldn't work today. Alarm systems are different, everything. Now, I'm going to explain one thing to you. Some has to be with the Laguna Ice and the Lordstown. And the reason for that is, right now, even though this has been 50 years, I'm working on these boys with the lawsuits. I'm not letting them get away with what they did. They could do it to you. They could do it to you, anybody. You, you got to see what they do to believe it. That back there showed you what they do to believe it. Anything you could. Jim. They, I'm public enemy number one. To go through all that. Hey, Emil, let me ask you this. So you spent 40% of your life behind bars. Yeah, it's no good. Was it worth it? Hell no. Now, if you could go back in time and you were 16 again, would you do it all again? After Laguna Heights, I should have quit. I mean, that was $30, $30 million. Forty million. I didn't have to do no more, but I, you just want to go, go, go. Okay, come on. All right, let's go for some questions from the crowd here. Test, test. Very good. So in Laguna, what would you have done different to have been more successful? What would you have changed about the heist to have gotten away with it? What would I have done different? Yeah. I shouldn't have took them two guys. That was it. <laughs> That was a, I was doing that as a favor to put you. All right, sir. Hey, Emil, I live in Greenford, Ohio. Uh, I heard that uh, my property was mined by the Dinsio brothers in my backyard, and I own an excavation company, and I've been digging back there forever, and I can't, you know, there's bulldozers in mines, and there's all kind of stuff back there, but I can't find any safes. And did you get a police escort when you stole a bulldozer to bring it into the property? The police escorted <laughs> you in? Because you got a lot of stories flying around Greenfield. No, that's not true. None of that's true. I've heard that one. I've heard even, that story. Hey, even the drag line. They said we stole that drag line. You, 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 Can you identify you the problem? 
property though, because I have an old bank barn, an 1800s bank barn. I have a creek in the backyard, and there's mines, and I have mine shafts, no and I have more. sinkholes on my property. Can you tell me if, if I'm close? <laughs> <laughs> I don't hear it too good. Let me hear that again. He said, "Can you tell him if he's tell him if he's close? He's 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 got a bunch of stuff. What what do you have in your backyard?" There was, uh, there was in caves in the mine shafts the state of Ohio reclaimed the property they came in and buried all the caves the, you know I, I was looking back there but it's too late now the state of Ohio no, buried no, it. they reclaimed no, the property there ain't nothing in there nothing over there. all right thank you hi I don't know if you remember my father Harold Kaza he worked with you sometimes for to repair your stuff but I want, and I went to school with your kids, but I wondered why you didn't just run the money through your mining company. Why didn't you run you the clean money, it that way. clean the money, get it through your mining company? Why didn't you just do that? Well, uh, the mining company, you don't make money like that. We made like, when we were mining the coal and selling the Cleveland Illuminating, we were moving like 400 ton a day. Okay, at $3, I think 50 cents a ton. That, that's no money back in them days. Talking the mic. You know? that's, that's no money. Uh huh. So you couldn't cook your books to watch that money like that. Right. It, it would have took them 50 years yeah. to <laughs> balance that book. I would have been doing IRS time. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> so um, I can't remember my other question. Oh, shoot, I'm that's sorry. Okay. Thanks. Thank you. So I was wondering if when you use TNT to get into the vault, if it was more of a gunpowder-based TNT or what it could have been made out of? Was your, was your TNT gunpowder-based or was it something else? Gunpowder? Your dynamite. Your no, di no. Dan dynamite's different. Okay. Dynamite is... Uh, it has nitroglycerin in it. And that's why I said 60% nitroglycerin we were used around that electric boxing cap. But you put five of them, five different holes. Okay. And it's halfway down, down in. So when it goes off, it just, you know, crumbles stuff. That's how that worked. Okay, thank uh, you. I got a question, how old are you? Uh, I just turned 12. <laughs> <laughs> Don't get no ideas. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for coming tonight. <laughs> yes, sir. We'll see how good his memory is. 45 years ago, my friend, I worked at Spartan Chevy, he said, I need you to do a little job for me. I said, I'm a mechanic. I'll do it at home. You got to tell me that. You speak up. Okay. So he, had, he said, hey, well, Denzel will be out to see you. Gave me my address. Doorbell rings, and we'll stand there. I'll never forget that. He said, I got an oil leak. Can you take care of it? I said, yeah, I'll do it for you, you know. He left the car, 70-something Impala. He come back three weeks later. I'll never forget that as long as I live. The doorbell rings. I got an electric garage door. I hit the button. Two in the morning. Door goes up. Amos will stand there. He goes, it's my car. I said, your car was done three weeks ago, and the next day I had it done. I put an oil pan on it. He said, what do I owe you? I said, 100 bucks. 
he reached in his pocket. I wish I knew this back then. He goes, $300 bills, and I ain't seen them. That's the first time since I've seen them. But I would have charged you more if I knew this. <laughs> You're a good guy. Thanks for coming out, sir. <laughs> Uh, Mr. Dinzio, you, you wrote a hell of a book. Um, this is actually really enjoyable to read, and I was kind of wondering, you alluded to having written a larger first draft. Is there any possibility that someday we might see the rest of this book? I think he's asking, many moons from now, it once, <laughs> once you're no longer around, is the, will, will that book come out? See, I... I have to be careful on stuff like that, see? Because even if, like the attorneys told me, it don't matter how long, but once, say, she had 100,000 in her box or something in diamond rings or whatever, right? She could sue me if I say another bank. You understand where I'm coming from? If I say I beat her bank where she had stuff in it, them would be big lawsuits. I can't, I can't afford that. <laughs> Mark Twain released a book about 10 years ago. So he's, he's getting at it is after you're gone, do you think that book would ever come out? Who's going to write it? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Oh, this got to be a good one here. So, Dad, are you scared? What? Are you scared about what I'm going to ask? No, don't you? So don't. I was going to ask who your favorite child is, but I won't ask that. <laughs> I just want you to tell about how the FBI played such dirty pool when they arrested Grandma and they charged Aunt Vi with perjury. There you go. Yeah. Tell that story, what they did there. They go after your family is what it is. Yeah, so my very first memory in life... Yeah. I was three years old, is of the FBI coming in to arrest my grandmother. That $20 bill that he talked about earlier, they said was found in my grandmother's purse. And it wasn't, but I remember watching the whole thing, and the FBI, so, so the FBI left, and my grandmother, I thought she was so old at the time, but she was only five years older than I am now. <laughs> and my, my grandmother said, well, they're going to be back to arrest me, so I, let me go put on my pantyhose. That's what my grandmother said. <laughs> and they came back, and they arrested her. And my sister, who was here also, she was screaming and crying. She was two. I was three. I sat there, and I watched it. And my grandmother, as the FBI was taking her out, she turned and looked at my older sister, who was 18, and said to her, you tell everyone to keep their mouth shut because I can handle anything these people can do to me. Mm. You're a good grandma. Yeah, uh, grandma was good. And that, I have to tell you, was the highlight of grandma's life. Until Alzheimer's took her memory, she was so proud that the FBI arrested her. She was so <laughs> Anyway, nice show, Dad. I love you. You're my ride or die. I love you. You always remember the... Thanks, Missy. Thanks, Missy. You, you always remember the scariest moments, the, those memories when you're a little kid. My 
first, my first memory was Freddy Krueger. Hers is the FBI, so. <laughs> Hi, Emil. I just want to ask for further clarification. When you talked about laundering the money through the woman that you knew at the bank, how exactly did you do that? You said you gave her like ten or $15,000 at a time. Then what happens? You gave her money, but really, what, how did you launder the money? I don't understand that. How do I what? How, how did, what, did, what happens after you give the woman at the bank the money? How do you get? How do you get it back? Basically, how, how does it work? How, how do you? Because you said that she would hand it out or do something with the yeah. money, but how did you get your money? She, gi she just gives it to me. Next day, two days later, you follow me? No. The, the, exactly what happened? You gave her, let's say, ten thousand dollars. Then what happens? The money I give her, she gives out to you. You, you, you. You're in the bank. Say oh, you, and they bring it back. Huh? Those people bring it back that she hands the money. It goes into circulation. Customers, customers, you know. That money goes into circulation, and then you would get clean money back from the bank, essentially. Yeah. Okay. So that money just goes out into circulation. Whenever they say they're laundering money like that, they're use. They have to spend that money in a sense, right? That's kind of how that works. So he was just. They were the bank. The person at the bank would give him clean money from the bank, and then she would just disperse some of that See, periodically. See, he does pretty good, don't he? <laughs> <laughs> That's what happens. You come into cashier's check, feed you the money. You know, I think that might have been an FBI question, Emil. I have a real easy question for you. I live in Goshen Township. Where exactly were you born in Goshen Township? You know where Duck Creek Road is? Yes. Duck Creek Road in 165. Yes. That farm, sitting way back in there? The Heinemann farm? That farm, sitting way back there. Oh, okay. That's where I was born. Okay. And I always tell my daughter, I remember when I was born. She says, what? <laughs> this is kind of... <laughs> I says, I was laying there in the manger, and I saw this light. I... I grew up on the farm. On, um, I saw this light coming down on me, and these little animals all around smiling at me. I grew up on the on a farm between uh, 45 and Goshen Road. <laughs> wow. Thank you. Wow. Yeah. Thanks for coming. Emil, well, thank you it seems for inviting. Like I know you. You do. Emil <laughs> and I got to know each other a few years back. He patronized my place. I just want everyone to know, <laughs> yesteryear's over, but that's a hell of a guy. <laughs> Emil came in, Thank you. did a few, you're welcome, did a few things for him, introduced me to his lovely daughter and granddaughter as well. How Emil, Emil's mind works, immediately, regardless to his past, I trusted him implicitly. His lovely granddaughter came in and, and I said, honey, what, what do you want to wear to your prom? I said, you pick whatever you want out. And she did. Certainly, Emil approved. And he looked at me and he says, you're, you're going to let me take this? I trust you implicitly, Emil. Do what you got to do with the FBI. I know you're a good guy. Thank you. I'm be with Thank you now you. and always. I appreciate your patronage and Thank hope you. to see you again Thank at the you. store. Thank you. I appreciate that. You betcha.
Thanks for coming out, sir. Yeah. You got some fans. Thank you. I'm sure I know a lot of people that you know. I can't but anyway, uh, out of all the money you got from Laguna, uh, and I know you buried some of it, and the FBI <laughs> dug up some of it, how much did you get to keep? How much of the Laguna money did you get to keep? Tell you the truth, I still got some. <laughs> The Laguna Heist. Who forgot to, to turn the dishwasher on when you guys left? So I know. Yeah, whose, job was, whose job was it to turn the dishwasher on and forgot to do it? That's all bullshit. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> hey. Hold on, sir. Hold on, hold on. He'll have an answer for you. Oh, okay. That's all planet and fingerprints. Believe oh, okay. me, buddy. All right. Thank hey, you. Thank here's, you. here's what happens. All right. <laughs> Whenever the FBI investigates a case, right? Right. No matter what they take, say they take this. What do they do with it? Now Anything they want to do with it, right. They right. send it to the FBI laboratory right. to be examined. In my case, the dishwasher stuff that they say was up there, guess who examined it? <laughs> An FBI agent down at his office. Right. He right, find my right. fingerprints, everybody's fingerprints. Come okay. on. It's all, right. all back there. I got it up on them easels. Okay. I, I asked, right. Appreciate it. Sir, I asked him that same question, and he, and he told me one of the first questions I asked him. I said, what about that dishwasher stuff? And he said, you really, you really think we left the dishes? We cleaned that whole place down, and we left right. the dishes in the dishwasher. So his story hasn't changed. So. Okay. All right. Thank you. I appreciate it. That's what they do. I'm yeah. Go ahead. I just wanted to say thank you. And, uh, uh, well, my mom was a friend of yours, uh, Frida, married to Chuck Mulligan. Chuck's uh, wife, Frida. Frida? Yeah, that was my mom. Well, that was that, his mother. That was your mom? Yeah, yeah. That was, that was Chuck, yeah. my, my brother-in-law, yeah. Yeah, yeah, after, yeah. He treated good, you know. Oh, he was the, he was the best thing that ever happened to my mom. She, yeah. He took care of her until she died. He was a good guy. Yeah, he really was. Yeah, he, he was so good, I had to give him hell. <laughs> Tell you why. He would go like the Mike Cyrax. You ever hear Mike oh, Cyrax? Oh, sure, sure, yeah. Bar? He'd walk we in and say, there. He'd walk in and say, set it up. The bar. I told him, Chuck, you got to stop that. You know, FBI informers are all over. There's a Chuck Mulligan coming in there and setting the bar up for everybody. I said, you got to stop that. Don't let people know you got money. Well, thank you very much for coming out. Yeah, I remember, Frida. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Hi there. I, um, I grew up uh, as a kid beside your brother, Bill Dinzio, in Ethel. And, um, and as a kid, I would be over their house playing, and the FBI would come in, and, and I'd have to leave. And really? that happened to me several times. And, um, but the question I have is, uh, I think I read the book, and it's been a while, but when you guys went and did the Laguna Nagao job, then you laundered that money in Vegas, is that right? Yes. Then how did you get that money back here from Vegas? How did I get that money back from Vegas? Yeah. Right in a, right in a little truck. <laughs> what, in the say truck? That, say that again. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Was, you just, what, what kind of truck, like an old box see, truck? 
What else was in that truck? Gold coins, yeah. diamonds, lots of stuff. So it was just a pickup truck? No, it was a little rental truck, a U-Haul. Like a box oh, truck. Oh, a U-Haul. A little U-Haul. Okay. <laughs> All right. That's what you have to do. You put furniture in there like you're moving. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> you don't speed. Right. Take your time. That's all. Right. Okay. That's how you got to do it. <laughs> all right. Thanks. Uh, did you or did someone you know uh, live in the Mill Creek Boulevard Wildwood area and have some the FBI come over one day and dig up the backyard? You lived around there? Uh, someone I know lived around there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they were there with gagger counters. With gagger counters, digging, poking in the ground, everything. Okay. I didn't have nothing buried there. <laughs> I had a couple dead cats I buried. You and do? they even commented on that one time because they went like that and they felt plastic and it was a dead cat. <laughs> Can, can you say who lived there? What's that? Can you say who lived there? Who lived, he's asking who lived at that house. At that time? Yeah. What, what year was it? Boy, it was in the 60s. In the 60s? Yeah. I lived there. Okay. 58, 16. Okay. Did you know, do you remember a gentleman lived in the house, White House, and right alongside you? They live there now? No, well, they live next to back your neighbor then. back then. No. Okay. I never paid much attention to the neighbors because I kind of wanted to be alone. You know what I mean? Don't well, I know your business. Were you a neighbor, sir? Uh, I knew the guy that lived there. Okay. <laughs> he told me of the story. And oh, Todd? No. Th no. That owns no. a house now? No. No. It, it's a white ranch house. White ranch house. Right on Mill Creek Boulevard. No. Yeah. And well, your house was right behind him, I think. After we got arrested, then everybody wanted to take a look at Mill Creek, where I live. There was nothing there, right? There's nothing there. Yeah. Dead cats. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thanks for coming out, sir. So, Emil, my question to you is, when is your movie coming out? Working on that. And you see, we're working on that. Uh, it takes time, you know what I mean? We don't have a whole lot of time at this stage of the game. <laughs> it's it's going to be a good one when it does. He's, he's also got working on another book. Yes. If you didn't see the easel up there, Real quick, Emil, tell them what your book is called, your new book. Thieves in Black Robes. <laughs> I like it. Who's that? I like it. I'm excited to see the movie. Thank you. He's, he showed me some of his new book, and he, he definitely doesn't take it easy on the judges who worked his cases. It'll be I know a that. bestseller. That book will be a bestseller. <laughs> Thank you for coming out. Uh, I'll be turning 68 in a couple months. Thank so, you. So uh, it doesn't sound like you were able to live the lifestyle 
with all the money that you had, uh, you know, you had to be conservative with, uh, you know, how you lived in that. So uh, it was more the thrill of the hunt in uh, as far as uh, accomplishing that as opposed to the, the money, correct? Because you couldn't live the lavish lifestyle that you could have lived with, with the money that you had. I live very cheap. You know what I do? I buy McDonald's, but I don't even do that no more because I went in there and I seen it was 11 bucks. <laughs> But, but you could have, back in the day, you could have afforded a lot of lavish things, but you really weren't able to. Hey. So the thrill was, was uh, doing the deed and getting it Listen, done, right? I can have Rolls Royce, Cadillacs, yeah. anything I want. I can build houses. Like I told my daughter, she was up there, right? I told her, I'm going to build your brand new house. One level. I said, when you get old, it's hard going up and down them steps. So you have a one-level house. It's perfect. No steps. You could even bust your head going down steps. No, I don't want no house. I don't want no house. What are you going to do? But then, you know, your buddy that, that wanted to buy the bar, uh, you know, you, you just had to lay low. Yeah, and with all that money, you really couldn't you couldn't buy the the you don't fancy want cars nobody to that. know you got yeah. money. Believe me, uh, that's a darn shame. What's that? There's that famous <laughs> scene in Goodfellas, right, where they all they do the Lufthansa heist, and then yeah. Johnny Rose Beef shows up with the with the his wife's got a mink coat and his per pink Cadillac. Yeah, yeah. And then, that's what then they he, do. Then he disappeared. Yeah, exactly, right. So. If you, you go to the FBI files I always do. and run through them, you, you know, on, t on uh, YouTube, uh -huh. you will see the different kind of thieves and crooks this world has. You know what I'm saying? Okay. It's, it's real entertaining, all you people. Just go to them FBI files. If you put my name in, it lights up real pretty quick. <laughs> or you'll see a lot of nice stuff. Some of those, I did one. CNBC, that's one I did. That's me. All the president's money, that was me. These other jokers on there that tried to make money off of it, off of that case, the case, they don't know what they're doing. They're just trying. That, you know, that movie that we talked about, that Finding Steve McQueen that came out, what they got wrong with that movie was the angle that it took to tell this story right as a movie. It's got to be from Emil's perspective. That movie was from, you know, a side character's perspective. Emil's got to make the movie where Emil tells Emil's story. That guy, Keith Sharon, that made that movie, he teamed up with some producers out the right. He wrote me when I was in prison. He wanted to come and see me so bad and everything. Were you really after the president's money and everything? I didn't even reply to him. I didn't even reply because I thought he was working with the FBI. And he probably was because all them newspaper reporters, they're friends with FBI and friends with local police, too. That's what they do. That's how they get their little stories they're putting out. 
In the farm there in Goshen Township, do you remember a big oak tree in the backyard with a little, like a playhouse up in it? What was that? The farm, the farm out in Goshen. Do you remember an, a tree in the backyard with a playhouse in big it? Big oak tree. Big oak back, tree. Out by the barn ramp. By the, yeah. No. No, no, I don't, sir. My parents bought that place in 51. Is that right? I was raised there. And there was always a little, like a little playhouse up in there. <laughs> and we always said that you guys would put money in there. But Mom and Dad would never <laughs> let us crawl up there and look. Hey. And it finally fell out of that tree about three years ago. <laughs> fell out? <laughs> fell out in pieces. So yeah. I thought maybe you knew what it was and no. who built it. There's quite a lot of local legends about your your Amel's money out there. <laughs> oh God! <laughs> it was, you know, we always saw it, and it was always, who knows what it is, but it is you, right. Yeah, that's right. Well, look, Thank real you. real quick, is there any still out there? What? Is there any money still buried somewhere out there? Or no. There's money. <laughs> you got you're not, you're not doing anything to, d to dispel these rumors. <laughs> All right, we got one more question. Yes, ma'am. We've got to watch what you do with it. <laughs> Hi, Mr. Dinzio. Um, I've always been impressed with your um, strong contrast between a bank burglar and a bank robber. And I've had the feeling that as a bank burglar, you were a little bit more interested in demonstrating that you could outsmart everyone else, which I totally applaud, and that, and that the FBI had to kind of cheat you to win. And I don't need your comment particularly on that, but what I'd like to ask is, are there other uh, uh, people, bank robbers or any other kind of people who have pulled off great heist that you would respect? Are there any other burglars or people that have pulled off any heists that you respect, that you have great respect for? D.B. Cooper, for example, anybody no, like that? No, no, not him. But okay. what not D.B. Cooper. But anybody, about, is there anybody out there that you respect? What about Nardo Botello and, and people like him? That, What's that? That, that? Did you have any? Did you have any peers or anybody that before that came before you that? No, then nobody did what we did. <laughs> what we do, nobody does. They take down banks and things like that there, but they, like inside connections, you know, getting information from the inside and everything, or to please shut down the alarm. There's one good one on there. Go to the FBI files. Uh, Medford, Medford, uh, Massachusetts. Massachusetts, cops. They mim they mimicked our Laguna case. The cops in that town. The cops in that town. They paralyzed the bank by blowing a hole through it. They couldn't even get caught because they were the cops. The whole crew. Of them. Go in the FBI files, and you'll see it. 
It's real funny. Well, what about people like Bartello? You know, they put together a team and went into Antwerp and, you know, infiltrated the vaults and and cleaned them out. I mean, I've got the greatest respect for you. I can't understand. Hey, what, what's your question? Well, there were other people who performed robberies that were really lucrative and who would he look in who would he respect i don't think he i think he answered it i don't think i don't think he looked up to anybody else she's asking there were other people that did some like in, she said in antwerp and other places but there's no there, you didn't have any i ain't heard him you didn't have any respect or any any he was not a fan of anybody else if that's what you're asking okay <laughs> Thank, thank you. Thank you, though. Yeah. All right. Thanks, everybody. That was really great. Go ahead, Jims. Hey, uh, let's let's give Amo a round of applause. And I want to say something. Okay. I'm really a good-hearted guy. Believe it. All right. Just so I want you all to know that. I'm sure there's an agent or two out here. I know that. <laughs> but that's good. I don't care. I also want to address something, a rumor that has gone around uh, Youngstown for a long time now. There's rumor that's gone around that Emil sitting next to me was involved in the murder of Joey Naples, okay? Um, I'm here to tell you that rumor is not true, okay? So for anybody that knows anybody that's been spreading that rumor around town, it is not true. Emil did not have anything to do with the murder of Joey Naples. The FBI gets a kick out of that one. There's a story behind it. We don't have time to go into it right now. Emil has told me the story. Um, but yes, he was not involved. What did Walter Cronkite say every night after the news? That's the way it is. That was an amazing podcast from an amazing podcast company. To watch with video, check out our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash amazing podcast company. If you enjoyed the show, don't forget to leave us a review. It goes a long way in helping other people find our amazing content.